Thank you, Annie, and hello. This does feel really funny to have you all sitting there looking at me with masks on, and hello to everyone at home. Um, yeah, it's been a lot of years, and I remember, I think the last time I, I taught was probably, my kids were little, and we were meeting at Calvary of Willow Grove for women's Bible study, and they were right not to ask me for like another 15 years after that. Um, anyway, um, I'm honestly nervous, because I, I told someone, we were just talking earlier, I would love to be like sitting at the piano and saying, and Jesus spoke to the Pharisees. You know, that would make me a lot more comfortable, I think, than actually getting in front of you and teaching, and hopefully not speaking any heresy or anything like that. So, um, so even I get fear of man and fear of, of, uh, of people, and so I just want to encourage you um, to enter in with me, and we'll go on this journey together. Um, there's a part of me that would love to be walking with you at my favorite cemetery, just walking and talking about the scriptures and just like comparing notes and, and, and thinking together. That's, that's what I love to do. So um, hopefully we'll all be able to do that later on when we go to our small groups. Anyway, I'm thankful to be here. And um, so I was thinking the other day, I felt like I was hitting a little bit of a block um, as I was preparing. And I was thinking, what's, like, what's wrong? What am I, what am I missing here? I've been reading this passage over and over again. I've been listening to it over and over again for a couple of months at least. I've been looking through the commentaries and getting distracted by everything that everybody has to say about each piece of this. Um, and then I think it was Sunday morning, um, we were during the worship time, some of the scriptures and some of what Ward talked about when he said that he, Jesus, was... Um, the firstborn of all creation, that he was the one that spoke the world into being. And I think what I was missing was that we're talking about God coming down in the flesh, Jesus as a man, the God-man. And I just had kind of missed that for a little while. I felt like I was thinking about him just like as another character in this story. He's not another character in the story. He is the story. And it's so awesome to, to think that we get a window through his disciples into things he actually said out loud to people. So, um, yeah, we're entering into this story today. You know, his popular, Jesus' popularity is increasing. People are flocking to him. Um, whether they're flocking to him to hear him speak with authority or whether they're flocking to him because he's doing these miraculous things, but they're still flocking to him. They're coming to him. And, um, you know, as we heard last week from Julia, she said that he went to a desolate place to pray, and his disciples went looking for him. They were like, everybody's looking for you. Um, one of the commentators said, you know, Jesus uh, doesn't respond to popularity polls. He had a different plan. He wasn't just responding to the crowd. He was responding to what um, his father and he had come up with and decided to do, that he would come down and he would bring the kingdom of God to earth. Um, and he was preaching about this kingdom of God and de- demonstrating his power. So um, 
I'm still kind of amazed by the end of that last chapter when he goes and um, the, the leper is there. I, I don't know how many of you have watched The Chosen. Have any of you watched The Chosen? I see that hands. Yes, I see that hands. Um, if, if you haven't watched it, I commend it to you. It is a, um, it's a, a series. You can download the app on your phone. And then you can cast it onto your TV. And if you want to know about that, ask one of my kids because I can't really tell you how to do that. Um, but they, uh, this, uh, the creators of the show did tons and tons of research about the culture of the day. Uh, into scripture, they, um, they talked to theologians, they talked to rabbis. They really wanted to, to present Christ and the life of Christ in a, in a pretty accurate way. Um, so this, uh, during COVID, when I had four out of my five kids home with me, we watched The Chosen at um, the recommendation of a friend. And I was honestly a little bit um, skeptical because I kind of grew up in that um, kind of church where you weren't supposed to look, have a picture of Jesus and have this idea of Jesus. Um, your, um, you know, they kind of looked down on put, putting up pictures in your church of him or anything like that. And at that point, I think the only pictures I'd seen of Jesus were like the blonde blue blue eyed Jesus that some of you can can picture from your childhood um so I was a little nervous about watching this and I was thinking are they going to get this right are they going to present Jesus correctly and I gotta tell you I just kind of I kind of fell in love with this picture of this kind of dirty area of Jesus like kind of sweaty and having messy curly hair and you know, uh, showing him camping out in the woods and with his disciples. And uh, these stories were coming alive to me. And I watched it um, with my two uh, two of my boys, uh, Caleb and Ben. And Caleb especially was just really enamored with this. He just loved watching it. And one of the things he said to me was, Mom, I feel like I've read about Jesus, and he's kind of like two-dimensional or one-dimensional. But I feel like after watching the show, he's just come off the page to me. And these things that we hear him doing, you know, healing the leper with just a touch or just a word and healing the paralytic and forgiving his sins. He says, it, it came alive to me and I feel like I, I understand and I'm so much more appreciative of who he is. So I commend that to you. And I um, just rewatched the, the um, episode where he healed the paralytic. And that's where we begin today. Um, and as we just said, he, as I was saying earlier, he had gone towards that leper. And um, when we think about that, you know, touching a leper made you immediately unclean. And as, um, as Julia said last week, that that wasn't a danger for Jesus. You know, Jesus would go towards him and make him clean. He was not defiled by the sickness. And in that day and age, the leper was, as she said, an outcast on every level, spiritually, socially, and physically. But Jesus was the one that restored him. And that's part of what he came to do. Um, as announcing the kingdom of God, he came to restore and renew and restore this creation that had gotten marred way back when. So that was pretty beautiful to, to look at. Um, so we enter in now with Jesus um, healing the paralytic. And um, I don't know about you, but that's probably one of the most famous stories. Like, do you remember that when you were a little kid? Like, remember the teachers and they would make the little model sometimes and show you how Jesus was let down on his, I mean, the man was let down on his mat. Um, 
so I can repeat it by heart. But I don't know if I really looked at it um, in this way. I remember, um, actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to maybe get ahead of myself um, on this, so I won't tell you this part yet, but I'll, go, I'll start here. Um, I read uh, one of the commentators talked about Jesus healing the paralytic, that Jesus, um, the Jesus we truly need versus the one we want. And we're going to talk about that now. Um, this probably happened at Peter's house or one of the other disciples' house. It wasn't necessarily Jesus' house. And um, once again, we, it begins with Jesus was teaching the word. Um, that's always the first thing. He teaches the word. And everyone's there, and they want to hear about him. And in this, the, the Chosen show, they kind of show people hearing him talking in the room. And, and people are drawn to the window because they hear this guy dialoguing about God. And they're just really interested, and they want to get closer. So the crowd starts coming. They hear about this man, Jesus, and they start coming, and they're filling up the space. And they're blocking access to the door. And then these friends come with their friend. They bring their friend, the paralytic. We don't know if he was paralyzed from the neck down or the waist down, but it was clear that he couldn't walk. He needed them to bring him. So this, they, um, they come, and at, at that point, the crowd was an obstacle to, to them getting to Jesus. Can you imagine the crowd just trying to picture these people, um, the, the guys trying to say, let us through, let us through. And the people are like, no, we're listening. We don't want to let you through. We want to hear Jesus. That's kind of what I imagine in my brain. So they get creative. They are persistent. And they have this compassion for their friends. So they think, how can we get him to this one that we know can heal him? And so that's when they climb up on the roof. And they do that thing that probably wouldn't be super socially acceptable. They start digging a hole in the roof. Now, um, I'm not exactly sure what roofs were like at that time. They weren't like our roofs because that would be pretty destructive. Um, there weren't shingles necessarily. There were probably some beams that went across, and then they were covered with dirt, hardened dirt and straw and different things like that. Um, but they still had to do something kind of creative and kind of... Um, it was not the popular thing to do. And I was thinking about this and thinking, what would I do? Would I have enough guts to dig a hole in somebody else's roof? Would I have enough compassion for my friend to do something that's outside the box, that might not be viewed by others as the right thing to do? It might be viewed as a nuisance. Um, yeah, um, I was struck with how I felt that I might be a little afraid, a little fearful to do that thing. But these uh, friends, they were confident. I'm just picturing them talking to each other. Okay, what are we going to do? What are we going to do next? How do we do this? Um, working together. This is like a picture of community coming around a hurting person. Um, and these friends, like the, the paralytic was probably not necessarily viewed with in high esteem by a lot of people in the village, but these friends were willing to be his friend and willing to come around him and help him in his time of need and help him get what could help him, could could really heal him. It also showed their confidence in Jesus, the stories they had heard or maybe the miracles they had seen. They were confident that he could and hopefully he would heal their friend. 
So, you know, just think about it. Look up for a second. Imagine as they're kind of getting this roof to get wider so they can lower their friend. I don't know how they lowered him. Was it a pulley that was already there? Was it they were holding on to four corners of a rope? But whatever it was, they needed to make that roof a little bit bigger to get him through. And um, so they there was probably dirt falling on Jesus and some of the other people in the house. And um, I keep thinking about the chosen in the picture where they had people saying, hey, what are you doing up there? Stop. You know, but they didn't stop. They kept going. They were persistent. And would you love to just picture Jesus looking at them? I'm sure he knew what they were doing. Isn't that awesome to think that he was kind of waiting? He was watching and waiting for them to um, to finish with their little task of opening that roof to let their friend come down. Um, one of the commentators, Strauss, or Strauss, I'm not sure how I'd say that, he says, persistent faith in the face of opposition or obstacles is an important theme throughout Mark. And that's what we see here with these friends. And, you know, Jesus, we, you probably noticed this because we were all doing the questions, or some of us were doing the questions this week, and um, Jesus said he saw their faith, and um, that's a plural, as you know. I mean, hopefully we all know that. It's a plural. And um, so... You know, Jesus was talking about the faith of the friends, too. We don't know for sure if he was talking about the paralytic's faith, but he was responding to the faith of the friends. Um, and in Mark, healing and faith are often linked. And um, you can see that all over Mark 1, 5, 6, 7. Um, and so, at that point, Jesus sees their faith, and he turns to the man and he says, Son, which is um, an endearing term. It could also be um, a person in authority speaking to someone kind of under him. Son, your sins are forgiven. Wow. That's not what I was expecting. I don't know about you, but I remember feeling a little disappointed when Jesus said, instead of get up and walk, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And I was miffed by that. Sometimes I still am, honestly. Um, David, I was listening to a, a sermon by a guy named David Platt. Um, he spoke at the Gospel Coalition conference last year. And he made this quote, which really kind of helped me um, think this through a little bit more. Because I think I was thinking about it in a simple way. Like, Jesus, you didn't give me what, he didn't give him what he wanted, what he really wanted. It says, Jesus is audacious enough to look at the paralyzed man and say, you may be unhappy, angry, and empty now because you can't walk. But if I give you just that, you will become even more unhappy, angry, and empty. I know you. I know your real problem and your real need. And that's what Jesus says to us, too, even when we don't like it. He says, our real problem is that we are building our identity. We often build our identity and rest our hopes in other little things beside him, other little saviors, as we say sometimes around here, beside him. Jesus, if only my kids would follow you. If only my kids would get through school this year. If only 
I had a really great marriage. If only my husband and I were on the same page. If only, you know, my house were a little bit bigger and we weren't so cramped in here. If only I had that job that really fulfilled me. Or if only that friendship that was um, is struggling was was uh, restored. You know, all these other things that are that are good in their own right. If only I, for right now, if only I had more time to myself. My kids are around me all day now. I have to help them all with their, with their schooling. And I'm thankful that I'm not in that boat, ladies. Sorry to you, to those of you that are doing that. That's a big deal. And I'm, I commend you. Um, if only I had more sleep. And you know, these things are often so insidious. We don't even realize that they are things that we're putting our, our hope in. We don't realize that we're making that the Savior, the thing that is going to bring us real life. You know, we often, as I said, we often think of our, to ourselves, um, if that thing happens, everything is going to turn around. Now, does this mean that we don't talk to the Lord about our desires? Does this mean we don't come to him and lay it and say, Lord, you know, this is what I'm thinking right now. I'm thinking that if this if this happened, things would be so much better. No, he says to us, come to me. He also says, trust in me with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on your own idea of what you think life would make life better and good. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. So, our... You know, sometimes it takes me a while to get there. Do I realize that my chief need is to be restored to Jesus, to be restored to my Savior, to be in relationship with him? And do I live that way? Well, you know, honestly, I don't all the time. It's a a daily struggle. I'm sure I'm not alone in that. Um, So as I was thinking about this potential disappointment that the friends felt in that moment, I was thinking about the fact that they brought him for visible help, um, but not invisible encouragement. And wondering, did they sense that this was the man's greatest need? Probably not. Um, but to, but this man's greatest need in that moment was to have Jesus say to him, to restore him to him, to say, son, your sins are forgiven. You are in right relationship with me. But we don't get to know anything else about what happens because what happens right then is that um, the attention is turned immediately to the scribes, the different religious leaders that were around. You know, we wonder, why were these religious leaders there? Um, I didn't get necessarily a super satisfying answer to that when I was reading, but, you know, some people were saying that perhaps the religious leaders knew, like, were near this home because... Um, they had heard about Jesus, and they were a little afraid of his popularity, you know, wondering, what is he teaching? Or, or they wanted to check up on him to make sure he wasn't um, being, you know, speaking heresy. Or, you know, he didn't look like them. He didn't dress like them, necessarily. He was kind of a common guy. Um, but he was still, they did st- said that he did speak in the synagogue, but he was doing things that were kind of outside the bounds of of what they thought he should do as a religious leader. Um, yeah, so the attention turns to these scribes and, uh, that says that they were thinking in their hearts. So they weren't speaking it out loud. 
they were thinking in their hearts. And Jesus immediately, it says, he knew what they were thinking in their hearts. Now, at that time, um, and actually we believe this too, that the heart is the center of man. Um, and, and in that day and age, there were different influences that would say it's the, um, it's the mind and the passions of man that were the center of him. And that's, that's what brought the, the conflict between the mind and the, and the passions. But um, Jesus talks about the conflict that we have in our own hearts. You know, he says our hearts are deceitfully wicked. But he, so he was speaking to what we say the center and the core of these, of these, the Pharisees or the scribes was, um, that in their hearts, they were saying, who can forgive sins but God? And he knew it. And then we can also say, wait a minute, who can read hearts and minds but God? You know, isn't that interesting that right in that moment, um, for, uh, Sinclair Ferguson in his book, um, says, he imagines what they were, were thinking. Who does this carpenter from Nazareth think he is? God alone can forgive sins. And there was nothing really wrong with their theology, because that's true, right? And he says it was their logic that was off. The alternative conclusion was perhaps he did have the authority to forgive sins because maybe he is God, but they weren't ready. Their hearts were hardened, and they weren't ready. So this um, this is really the the heart of the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of his time. The crux of the controversy was theological, not merely moral. It was about God's character. The religious leaders were saying, God cannot come to us like this and do these things so humbly and graciously. Therefore, this man cannot be the son of God. They could not tolerate that his words and works revealed that about the character of God, that he saves sinners. So, Jesus responds, and he says, what's what's easier to say? Isn't it interesting he says, what's easier to say? He doesn't say what's easier to do. He says, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before all of them. And they glorified God and said, we've never seen anything like this. Ah, look what Jesus did. So he gave him what he needed, which was forgiveness, restoration, with God. And then he gave him what he wanted. And he also used that miracle to verify his authority to forgive sin. Because is it, they would say, oh, it's easier to say forgive sins. You forgive sins. But he actually showed his power and his authority by raising him up. His authority to forgive sins by raising him up to walk. That's awesome. But you know, this passage also raises um, a difficult question on the relationship between sin and disease. I'm not going to cover this too um, extensively. But in Jesus' day, it was widely believed that personal sin led to disease. And we see Jesus' disciples um, in John 9-2 assume uh, that man's blindness was the result of sin. But Jesus denies this. In Corinthians, um, he denies this to them at that time. Because they asked, who sinned? Is him or his parents? And he said, neither. 
But also in Corinthians 11, 29 to 32, Paul does talk about um, the disunity in the Corinthian church that resulted in sickness and even death. Um, and in James 5.15, James affirms that the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. So this confirms that sickness may be related to personal sin, but it's not all the time because we know from Jesus that he said that it wasn't. So as we think about praying with others and talking to them about their illnesses and their struggles, are we to ever assume that it might be related to a sickness or something like that? No, that's not our job. So I would encourage you as sisters in Christ, as you come alongside others, to love them, to pray with them, and to offer God's compassion, love, and forgiveness to them. And um, don't be like me and try to jump to conclusions when you think you know you're right, which sometimes happens with me. Anyway, we're going to move on because I realize it's 7.44 and we have like five more minutes and we have two more parables. Um, we're going to talk next about... Um, the calling of Levi or Matthew. So um, there, this is recorded in three different Gospels. Um, and only in Matthew, um, he calls himself Matthew in Matthew. Um, but in the other two, he call, and Mark and Luke, um, it's called the calling of Levi. So some people say that it could be because he was a Levite and they were identifying him according to his tribe. Or he could have had two names like Simon Peter or Paul and Saul. But um, that's not something we need to really worry about. But we just need to say these these three instances were very similar. So we are assuming that Levi is Matthew. Um, and in this uh, this this story, Jesus' kingdom ministry is a joyful invitation to outcasts and sinners who recognize their need for spiritual healing. Um, it's interesting to think about um, Levi. Sometimes we think that maybe, you know, Jesus just was walking by him one day and he looked at him and he saw him at his little booth by the Sea of Galilee and he said, come follow me. And, Je- and he got up immediately and went. And, you know, it sounds like a miracle. But um, I'd encourage you to think maybe, you know, Levi was in this town. He was around. He, he had probably had the opportunity to see and hear Jesus teaching by the Sea of Galilee because that's where his booth was. So... I wonder if Levi, as a tax collector, was just so intrigued by this story about Jesus. Like, saw what he did, heard what he said. And I wonder if he thought in his mind, could he, could I ever have a relationship with him? I'm a tax collector. So listen listen a little bit about tax collector. Um, So in this time in scripture, this was during the Roman occupation, so a tax collector was collecting for the Roman government. Um, and um, in the eyes of Jews um, at that time, they were regarded as, as sharks and even traitors because their profession implicated them with the occupying Roman forces. So they were um, charging a tax probably on fish or other items that were coming across the sea. And in order to make money, since they were paying the Roman government, they had to jack their prices up. So they were taxing more than what was their due in order to pocket some. And they often said that these tax collectors were pretty wealthy. And we're going to see a little bit later that that Matthew is one of those wealthier tax collectors. So they also, uh, Luke 19 says they were often dishonest in collecting excessive amounts. Um, Also, these... um, they were mostly Jews at that time. They chose this occupation. 
So some would say they're even more unclean in the eyes of the Jewish leaders and the, and the Torah than um, lepers were even, because they chose this occupation. They weren't considered real Jews anymore. They were often probably disowned by their family. They were also social outcasts, and they weren't allowed in the synagogue. They were absolutely despised by their own culture because they worked for this occupying Roman government. The religious elite, the the scribes and the Pharisees, would see them as very sinful people. So sinful, this one guy says, that um, they were that even spending time with them could immediately tarnish a good person's reputation. And they certainly were not allowed to eat in their homes. Um, so this next section, so he calls Levi, and Levi, it says, um, actually, what, what chapter is that? What book is that? Um, I think it's in Luke. It said Levi dropped everything. He dropped the money. He just left, and he followed Jesus. Wow. That's pretty awesome. I'm picturing him going back to his other tax collector friends and different people that may be social outcasts like he was and saying to them, hey, Jesus, he, he's this teacher and he make, does these miracles. He's amazing. And he talked to me and he wants me to follow him. Isn't that awesome? He wants me to come and follow him. Why don't you guys come to my house for dinner? I want you to meet him. I want you to hear him talk. So that's what happened next. That he had a, I threw a banquet for him, and um, yeah, he hosted a great banquet for him with a large crowd in attendance. Um, it says that Jesus didn't just sit at his table; he reclined at his table. Um, in Greek, that that indicated there was an attendance at a formal banquet or a dinner party, and um, and Jesus was willing to come. He came into his house. He wasn't afraid to be unclean, because he was God. He knew his mission. He knew that he came to restore, not keep himself separate, to bring God to man. So who were these other sinners? We know there were tax collectors, and they said, and other sinners, lots of sinners. Um, They could refer to common Israelites um, who did not hold to the scrupulous standards of righteousness practiced by the Pharisees, and thus they too were despised by them. Or it could refer to the wicked, those people with questionable moral behavior. Um, They could have been the scoundrels of first century life. But some of Jesus' other followers were there as well, because those are the ones that um, the Pharisees ask the question to. So this is the first introduction of the Pharisees in the book of Mark. Um, The Pharisees were extremely influential among common people um, of all the Jewish sects, S-E-C-T-X, I can't say that really very well. Um, They were the largest group. um, And actually, um, they alone survived the war with Rome in 66 to 70 A.D. Um, Apparently, um, so all current Judaism um, practice comes really, um, owes its existence to Pharisaic origins. They believed in the sovereignty of God, human accountability for virtue and vice, the resurrection of the dead, angels and demons, and most importantly of all, scrupulous adherence to the written Torah and the oral traditions that it was based on. So these Pharisees, they were utterly devoted to the law. They called the, the Torah, the, the group of mostly the things in Leviticus, I would say. 
They believed that keeping the law was their primary religious duty, and they believed that the law could be adapted to every situation. So they put this hedge around the law. They made all these other laws so that that would help people to keep the main laws. Um, so they, this is so interesting, they determined that the law contained 613 commandments. 248 were positive and 365 were negative. Wow. When I think about my rules, like brush your teeth, make your bed, load the dishwasher. Um, those That's a lot of laws. Can you imagine trying to keep them every day? Um, and the Pharisees committed themselves to a life of radical separation. They had an enormous list of do's and don'ts. Um, one other thing, they couldn't buy food. This is one example. They couldn't buy food from or eat in anyone's home who wasn't a Pharisee. Um, in case that food hadn't been tithed. So what Jesus was doing was clearly wrong. So this was pretty dramatic. So they came there. Um, you know, in our day, we often identify Pharisees as hypocrites, and but most first century Jews wouldn't think about them that way. Um, they were often admired. They were looked up to. I think they were probably pretty feared by a lot of the common common man that... Um, so Jesus um, wasn't really criticizing them for their goals of purity and obedience. This is a quote from Edwards in his book. He said he was um, he wasn't yeah criticizing them for their goals of purity and obedience, but for the inconsistent and hypocritical ways they worked these goals out. They were raising their arbitrary interpretations of the law, all these extra little things, to the level of God's commandments. And they, as over time, they became obsessed with external things, neglecting the issues that mattered most to God, justice and mercy and the heart. And they had lost their heart for God's people. So Jesus comes in, he's eating with them. Um, And Jesus, you know, they ask his disciples, why is he doing this? Um, And Again, Jesus knows what he's thinking because he responds to them. And he says, doctors do not visit those who are well, but those who are sick. I came um, to, to heal sinners, not the righteous. He was, in that moment, really condemning them for what their outward uh, law-keeping had done. Jesus was saying, my kingdom is not contaminated by sinners, but it brings restoration and healing. And he was reconciling people to God. He wanted to bring people to him. Strauss also says, Here we see God's heart for people and his offer of salvation for all who respond in faith. Jesus is not a respecter of persons, but he treats sinners and saints alike. His announcement of the kingdom of God means that all must repent and enter enter in humble submission. And, you know, he says also, ironically, it's often the despised members of society who recognize their sinful nature, their sinful status and fall on God's grace for salvation. The self-righteous see no reason to repent and so direct God, reject God's salvation. Jesus was coming to preach about not separation, like the Pharisees were separating themselves from the unclean, but transformation, coming to transform his creation um, he also calls us in, in, in his word to be salt and light in the world. 
Um, salt and light, what do they do? They don't separate. They, they permeate. They transform their environment. Light makes things grow. Salt makes things sometimes taste the taste a little bit um, richer and a little bit more clear. Not to put up these defensive barriers like the Pharisees were doing. One of the other commentators said, doctors do no good for the sick if they hide in clinics behind locked doors. And then why does the surgeon scrub up before an operation in order to help, in order to help those who are diseased or physically deformed? He goes towards the sinner just like, like Jesus, the, the sick person, just like Jesus comes towards the sinner. You know, I was first called a Pharisee when I was about 24. Um, by a friend of mine who had been going through the sonship course at New Life. And um, this friend met me one day for lunch to talk about sonship and said, Joyce, I just want to tell you, you're a Pharisee. And I was like, who are you? And I had no idea what he meant by that. Um, and we're going to stop in a minute, I promise. Um, and he uh, and he said, you know, you're self-righteous. You think it's about doing all these things to earn approval with, with God. And I just, I had no idea. I didn't really understand that framework of thinking. But I'm so thankful for my years at New Life. It's been a lot of years here growing under that understanding of how in my own life that I try to build up this reputation to earn me favor with God. And I don't even realize that's what I'm doing. I don't realize that that that's happening. Um, And I'm so thankful for the way the Lord continues to work on me and my heart and show me himself So my question for you is, who do you relate to? Who do you relate to? Do you relate to uh, the sinners, the Matthew, the tax collector who knew he had need, and these other tax collectors who came to hear from Jesus because they knew that there was something wrong. They knew that they were outcasts, and they wanted to, to be restored. Who do you relate to? Do you relate to the Pharisees? Do you relate to that uh, the person who tries to look good on the outside, Ah, those things are hard to kind of come to grips with, but it's important that we look into our hearts and we ask the Lord to show us those ways that we're trying to do that. Um, And also we look at ways that we relate to other people. You know, how am I, Lord, I'm erecting barriers and, and how am I keeping myself from people that I think are not worthy or sinners or too, how, how am I erecting these barriers? Um, and only hanging with saints or only hanging with my Christian friends? Or am I hiding behind my churchiness? Like, Where do you, Lord, want me to enter in in people's lives? So I'm just going to touch quickly on the fasting, and then we'll be done for the night, and you'll get to go to your groups. Um, Fasting was only commanded in Scripture um, on one day. It was a 24-hour period. In the Old Testament, it was the Day of Atonement. There were other times that there were fasts, but um, they were not commanded in Scripture. They fasted in times of crisis, during war, um, sometimes when there was plout, drought, I mean, and, and uh, uh, famine or plagues um, for many different personal reasons. But there was only one um, fast that was commanded. And these religious leaders come to, uh, again, to Jesus, and they're like, why aren't you fasting like the, the, the Pharisees are? Why don't you, fa- why don't you fast twice a week like, like they do? Why are your disciples, um, acting like, 
You know, they don't need to do that. That's, you know, that was what, how they were measuring piety. Um, but they were actually, these Pharisees, the, the Pharisees are even, I can't say this about John's disciples, but it says the Pharisees, um, Ferguson says they were going beyond the law of God and, and then they were insisting on what God had not insisted on. Um, in some ways, maybe to outdo God with man-made traditions. Um, so Jesus says, why would you party? Why would you, I mean, why would you fast when there's a wedding, when there's a bridegroom is with you? Jesus was saying that he was the bridegroom. Um, and if you know anything about Jewish weddings, they lasted for like seven days. They weren't just the one day things that we do. They were like seven days and there was eating and drinking. And if you went to one of these weddings and you didn't eat or drink, you would look really out of place. Um, how many of you have been on a diet going to a wedding and you didn't eat everything and you felt pretty awkward? I've definitely done that before. Um, so Jesus was saying, why do this when I'm, when, um, when I'm still with you? And then he gives those two parables to, uh, about the... Um, hold on, where's that? He gives the two parables about the um, patch, putting a new patch on an old clothing, saying that um, it would detach when it went through the wash because the new patch would shrink. Um, he talked about himself being new wine. Why would you put new wine in old wine skins? When the wine ferments and expands, it would break the old skins. Um, he was basically saying, I'm not an attachment or an appendage to your status quo, to your religion. I'm coming to break this mold of religion that you were in. Um, he can't be integrated into or contained by pre-existing structures. So for us tonight, um, just taking a little a bit of an application from these last two stories, um, I guess the question is, um, is it that we, um, whether we are going to f- forsake business as usual and join the, the celebration, whether we are willing to become new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in our lives. He's not condemning fasting at all. He's actually speaking about, he says his disciples will fast when the bridegroom leaves. Um, So, as we close, um, what is our challenge as a church today? Are we going to... uh, Reclaim our authority to be salt and light in this world? Or are we going to take a defensive stance in society, being afraid of this, of the outside of society's defiling encroachment on our values and beliefs? Um, or are we going to go on the offensive? Are we going to go on the offensive like Jesus did, transforming the world through the unconditional and self-sacrificial love of God? Rather than complaining about the world's defilement like the Pharisees did, are we going to help restore it? Are we going to help restoring it by overcoming evil with good? Let me pray. Lord, I just um, I thank you for this opportunity to be in your word tonight. I thank you that uh, you've shown me more of you as I've studied this. You've shown me more of how you didn't come to fit in to the existing religious um, system, Father. 
You didn't, you didn't come to just bind people to all those laws and rules and regulations. You came to free us to follow you. The one who came in humility, came with compassion, came with um, seeing people, praying for them, loving them, caring for them. So, Father, would we digest these things in our heart? Help us as we go to our groups now, Lord. Give us your insight. In Jesus' name, amen.